Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. I don't know if you've noticed this. I've noticed this. When we speak of religion, we speak of it like you can select the bits and pieces that you like about it. And so really, the thing you're trying to do is shop for a religion that some sense matches you, that corresponds to the things that you desire. It's a lot like going to the supermarket, and you go to get a bag of chips, and there's a whole aisle full of 5,000 different kinds of chips, right? You can get the wavy lays or the non-wavy lays or the yeah chips, whatever, right? And you can kind of shop for your religion. You can kind of search about and find the things that correspond to the things that you think are right. And you can kind of go about this choosing of religion in this 21st century in such a way so that you can kind of shop and get the things that you desire done at this for quite some time now. In fact, it's been the critique of religion, or the critique of Christianity. It's the opiate of the masses' hounds. It's the thing that's meant to just make you feel better. Some would even say that religion's purpose, its intention, is for you to kind of get beyond all of the inadequacies and inconsistencies in your heart and life, all of the things that are just kind of there inside of you, all of your personal demons, all of your mental health issues, all of your problems that you have, that's what religion is for. And if you're strong enough and good enough, you don't really need religion. But then we come to Easter Sunday. And if Easter Sunday is true, And there was a man who went into a grave and came out on the other side. There's no selecting of religions there, is there? This God who was raised to new life gets to determine the rules, doesn't he? When Jesus bids us come and follow him, he bids us to take up our cross and deny ourselves. we run into in Matthew chapter 28. Here's our our point this morning. Jesus' resurrection proves his authority. If Jesus is truly raised to new life, if he's truly one who is dead and is now alive through the power of his life over death, then he has the right to claim whatever he wants to claim in us. He has the right to judge however he wants to judge. If this God has power over death, he can lay upon us any claim he desires. Now, we'll see this in three different movements. In verses 1 through 10, we're going to see Mary and Mary are told to see and tell that Jesus is risen. That's a complicated mouthful of a sentence, but it's summarizing some 10 verses, right? There's two Marys. They come, and they're told to see and to tell. But then in verses 11 through 15, we're told another story of what to tell, and it's kind of a false story. In fact, uh, the guards, the Roman guards, are told to tell a false story uh, to others in verses 11 through 15. And then finally, in verses 16 through 20, we see an authoritative Jesus directs his disciples to go 
and to tell. I want to dig in this morning. We have lots to cover. I want to dig in and get started with this first point that Mary and Mary are told to see and to tell that Jesus is risen. Look at this passage that Jody read for us. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the, the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was like snow, or white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And behold, Jesus met them. Uh, Excuse me. So they departed quickly from the tomb uh, with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said, Do not be afraid and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And before we really kind of dig into this passage, I want to kind of take a second to talk about Matthew as a whole. You're saying, How long is this sermon going to be? I'm saying, no, we're going to dig in in Matthew 28. But if we're going to understand Matthew 28, we have to understand all of Matthew. See, one of Matthew's points of emphasis is all about this this idea of the kingdom. Matthew, in the course of his gospel, mentions this word kingdom some 50 times throughout these 28 chapters. And it starts in chapter one. He gives us, Matthew gives us this genealogy of Jesus. And one of the names that's listed in there is David. There's a connection between the king, David, who sat on the throne and the rightful heir to that throne named Jesus. Jesus is the true king over the kingdom, or Matthew is arguing in that way. Chapters three and four, as we're talking about the kingdom, John the Baptist comes and he starts preaching this very simple message. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's such a great message that Jesus starts preaching it in Matthew chapter 4. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's in Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus in his teaching is saying the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like. And finally, it kind of culminates to Matthew chapter 26, where Jesus sits down with his 12 disciples And he breaks a loaf of bread and he says, take, eat, this is my body. He spills out some wine and he says, take and drink, this is my blood. He says, I will not drink it anew with you till I drink it anew with you in the kingdom, my father's kingdom. See, that's this context of this gospel. Now, what happens shockingly in chapters 26 and 27 is that all of society's parts kind of fail to recognize this true king, Jesus. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter. The chief priest calls him a blasphemer in chapter 6, and Pilate plans to put him to death. What we see in Matthew 26 and 27 is society's catastrophic failure to recognize Jesus in two areas. First, they fail to recognize his innocence. 
The text time and time again is telling us that Jesus is innocent. Judas comes to the temple with his 40 pieces of silver, and he gives them back to the chief priest, and he says, I have betrayed innocent blood in 27.4. Pilate's wife tells him, uh, have nothing to do with this righteous man. In 27.53, there's the Roman centurion sees Jesus crucified, and he says, surely this was the Son of God. And so it's this kind of recording of all of these people failing to recognize the innocence of Jesus. But it's not just that, it's the failure to recognize the kingship of Jesus. And time and time again, our text is highlighting that Jesus is the rightful king. When he's crucified, ironically, they place this sign over his head that says, Hail or Jesus, King of the Jews. 27, 29, they put a crown of thorns on his head and they beat him and they say, hail, king of the Jews. Most notably, the blasphemy that Caiaphas accuses Jesus of is recorded in Matthew 26, where he says this, this is what got him put to death by, or sent to Pilate by Caiaphas. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's this constant witness in these chapters of innocence, kingship. How then, how then does Matthew 28 pick up on these themes and continue? Now, what we see first is an angel shows up, right? And when the angel shows up, there's this massive earthquake. The first thing he does is roll away the stone from the tomb. Now, here's what's worth recognizing, right? The angel rolls away the stone from the tomb, but there's already not Jesus inside. It's not like he's opening the door for Jesus. Jesus has already gone out. Jesus isn't waiting like a dog at the back door to go outside. Jesus is already out of the tomb. And verse 2 tells us that he shows up with this earthquake. And verse 3 describes this, uh, this angel that his appearance was like lightning. His garments are white like snow. This is like the royal court of the king there in the presence of humanity. The majesty and power of this angel is enough to subdue this regiment of soldiers that they are like dead men. I was reading a commentary and they pointed out the irony of like the the people who are guarding the person they thought was dead now become like dead men so that the alive man can escape. I mean, not really escape. He would escape anyway, but you see what I'm saying. What happens then in verses five through seven is the angel gives instruction or direction to these two Marys. First, he says, do not be afraid. Now notice four times in these first 10 verses, the the idea of fear is brought up. At first, it describes the fear of the angel in verses four and five, and then it kind of transitions in verses eight and 10, and it describes this fear to a resurrected Jesus. There's something to be said about this reality of resurrection. It should elicit a response of awe and wonder, perhaps even fear in us. If there's someone who's really uh, powerful over death, we should have some sense of reverence before that person. If Jesus is truly raised, he is something different than we have ever known or something different than the world has ever known. And so the angel tells Mary that Jesus is risen. Look at verse 5. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. In verse 6, he is not here, for he has risen as he said. 
these women come to this tomb thinking they're going to see a dead body. But the angel informs them they will not find a dead man here. Jesus has risen from the dead. And he directs them what to do next. Look at verse six. He says, come see the place where he lay. Mary and Mary were just there on Friday. They just saw the tomb covered up with the stone. They were just involved in the burial process. And they saw Jesus's lifeless body entered into the tomb, covered over. And now as they look into the tomb, he's not there. Finally, he directs them, come see and go tell. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. See, the messenger angel sends these messenger women, right? They are to direct the disciples to go back to Galilee. And on the way, they meet Jesus himself. Isn't it funny how many times in the resurrection accounts someone has told about Jesus's resurrection only to see it proved later? It, it lays for us this foundation of we are those who bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Even in the earliest days of Jesus's resurrection, word was passing by word of mouth, not by sight. And so Mary and Mary were instructed by Jesus themselves in verses 8 through 10. Jesus greets them meets them with this word greetings, right? And you imagine him like a prim, proper Englishman, greetings. He's got a pipe or something, I don't know. Really what that word means is rejoice, be glad, rejoice. Is there a more appropriate word with which to greet these two women? Rejoice, I'm raised from the dead, rejoice. And so these women, they fall down on the ground. They prostrate themselves before Jesus and they grab his feet and they're worshiping him. And Jesus then directs them in the same way that the angel directed them in verse 10. They're not to be afraid. They are to go and tell the other disciples to go to Galilee. You know, it's worth noting this morning that there are facts that demand our attention. There are just facts that demand our attention. We think back to the stories of like Copernicus and Galilee, right? They, they come to this knowledge that, hey, we're not at the center of the universe where we're kind of spinning around this thing called the sun. That kind of changes things. Columbus, he's not the first person to believe in a round world, and it changed how he actually went about his business. There are facts that deserve our attention. And notice the call made to these Marys, come and see and go and tell. This fact presents itself to them so that there might be an appropriate action that follows. Mary and Mary are invited to see for themselves. They couldn't adequately go and tell until they saw for themselves. Truth is that these women were to be the primary witnesses of Jesus's resurrection. And they needed to participate in the miracle. They needed to see this empty tomb so that they could go and tell. Significant facts are worth sharing, aren't they? In fact, if you're a mom or a dad, you get frustrated when the significant facts aren't shared with you. The significant facts of like, hey, the science project that I've known about for four months is due tomorrow, 9 p.m., nothing's open. Good luck with that, mom. Significant facts are worth sharing. If Jesus' resurrection is true, it affects every person every, ever born. 
Jesus' defeat of death has meaning for everyone, everywhere. Specifically, it should start with us. It should start with you and me. As we uh, witness in Matthew 28, the empty tomb, this fact should have particular bearing on our life. There's not a person in this room that if we continue in our life and Jesus doesn't return, that we will somehow escape death. All of us will face death. And so this fact about Jesus beating death is imminently important to all of us, isn't it? See, this fact, if it's true, cannot be peripheral to your life. It has to be central and totalizing. When Jesus spoke of those who would follow him, he said it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. If anybody's going to put the resurrection at the center of their life, guess what? They've got to deny themselves. It's got to be all defining to them. Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3. He lists off his resume. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was this. I was that. I was all these other things. But I count all of them as rubbish in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be participants in this resurrection, we've got to put Jesus at the center. He can't be just some part of our life way out there. But what happens next is really interesting. This is a a true accounting, verses 1 through 10, a true accounting of what happened to Jesus. And we should recognize that there will be false accountings, false stories that arise about what happened with Jesus in the tomb. So look at verses 11 through 15. While they were going, behold, some of the guards, excuse me, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The Roman guards are told to tell a false story. These guards, they come to the chief priests. It's questionable. Why, why, why do they go to the chief priests? Why don't they go back to the barracks and tell their commanding officer? Why don't they go tell Pilate? Why don't they go tell the governor? Why don't they go tell someone who's kind of a part of their organization? Well, the truth is, if they go back and tell the wrong people, uh, they will probably be put to death. And so uh, they recognize that they're in a similar situation as these chief priests who hired to put them there in the first place. So they spin this story in verse 13. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, there's all kinds of uh, scholars that kind of testify, and they say, hey, uh, there's probably 12 to 20 soldiers that were there. Uh, that's typically what has kind of been implied by the language of, of the New Testament. So there's lots of Roman soldiers, trained Roman soldiers there in front of this tomb, and they're guarding this tomb. And so we, we start to think, wait a minute, this story doesn't add up. These soldiers fell asleep, and these 12 fishermen and tax collectors you know, snuck up on them and, and rolled a, a you know, thousand-pound stone away without waking them up. I mean, come on now, right? That doesn't make any sense. 
and they were, their lives were staked upon guarding this dead body, and they couldn't even do that to stay awake. Amongst 12 to 20 of them, nobody could stay awake, and nobody was awakened by this massive stone being rolled away. And look what the chief priests do. They pay off these witnesses, and they tell them that they're going to take care of whatever problems may arise. There's just so many red flags that are raised here. And, and Matthew's even laying out that this in verse 15, this is a story that's been ongoing even through the writing of this gospel. See, the truth is that there are false explanations of Jesus' resurrection. It's worth noting, isn't it, that all of the men involved in this secret meeting know the same fact to be true, that Jesus was dead and now was alive. They saw the angel. The Roman guards testified to the angel. There's no question about whether Jesus was actually raised. The question is about what to do with that information. They chose to spin an alternative story in order to save themselves, didn't they? Jesus' resurrection wasn't central. It was a fact to be denied, a fact to be pushed to the side. You know, we tend to think today about hardened secularism. The stories that are spun about Jesus' resurrection are, are things like the swoon theory, that Jesus wasn't really dead, that he kind of just, uh, he was in a coma. And so when they put him in this cool, damp place, it kind of revived him to new life. There's others that just deny the account existed at all, that this is just folklore. It's like John Bunyan or whatever else. John, Paul Bunyan? Paul Bunyan. Yeah. John Bunyan. Yeah, never mind. Babe the Blue Ox. Whoever owned a Blue Ox, that guy, all right? And we might think that these are the biggest threats to Christian faith. The, the idea that uh, someone else would propose or spin some kind of theory that would stand opposite the resurrection. But when we read the resurrection accounts, they, they're pretty watertight. They don't uh, really offer a lot of ways out. If they're truly true, if they're right, then the things that are recorded there, it, it just leads us to this knowledge of the resurrection. See, the biggest threat to our belief in the resurrection isn't these contradictory theories. The biggest threat to our belief in the resurrection is our minimization of the resurrection. The truth is that many claim belief in the resurrection, but, but choose to minimize its importance. It's what we call nominal Christianity. Have you ever heard that term before? Nominal Christianity? The idea that I believe in Jesus, but doesn't really have much bearing on my life. Nominalism requires no major sacrifice of its adherence. It vaguely knows Jesus and only trusts him in the moments of crises. For the nominal Christian, Jesus is more like a Facebook friend of sinners. Somebody that is in our constellation of friends, but not really central to us. It's someone that you vaguely know, but don't really think about all that often. The biggest lie about Jesus' resurrection is that God could use it to save your soul, but not change your life. Jesus could somehow be my Savior and not be my Lord. Paul warns us about this. In 2 Timothy, he's writing this last letter to Timothy, and he's telling him about these people at the last days and what they're going to be like. And one of the things that he says is that, uh, that they have a form of godliness, 
but they deny its power. But there's this sense of Christian right. We do good things. We help people out. We uh, try to act like good people. We're friendly. We don't really have a sense of how the Lord's power might change us, what the Lord might choose to do in us. That's the sticking point. Even their faith is in moderation. And they deem true Christianity eccentric and overblown. See, if Jesus is truly raised from the dead, then he's a king worthy of any obedience which he might ask of us. If Jesus is truly alive and truly sits at the right hand of the throne of God right now, he should be able to ask anything of us that we would do. This is what happens in verses 16 through 20. Jesus meets with his disciples and he's got big ideas. Look at verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus, this authoritative Jesus, directs his disciples to go and to tell. It starts off with the the disciples meet Jesus, and again, they're falling down, and they're being prostrate before Jesus, and they're bowing down before him, and they're worshiping. But it's interesting to note that here, some doubted. And you might say, oh, they're not Christians. They don't know Jesus. No, that's not entirely true. In fact, the only other place that this word is used is in back in 14, where Peter walks on the water and Jesus says, you of little faith, after he falls in, like he looks around, he sees the wind and the waves and he he falls into the water and Jesus pulls him up. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Notice that they've come all the way back to Galilee to meet with Jesus. They're here. They're still a little hesitant. You ever feel like that? Ever feel like you're just a little hesitant? The Lord's asking you to step into this obedience, to step into this life, to share your faith. You're just a little hesitant. God has grace for that, doesn't he? Look what he says is going to happen in these disciples. These disciples are to make disciples. Excuse me, let's back up for a second. I skipped a phrase. In verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven on, on earth has been given to me. We might ask, wasn't Jesus authoritative before this happened? Like, if he was God, did he lack any authority before he went to the cross, before he was resurrected? Well, that's true. When he was in eternity past, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was fully authoritative. But here, this God-man is now authoritative completely. Now, he's, just, he's not just the God that is authoritative. He's the God-man. He is the man resurrected to new life. Jesus was fully God in eternity past, but now he's a man with all of God's power, vindicated, resurrected, powerful, in charge. This is Jesus Christ. 
And this is importantly, particularly, or important, particularly for what Jesus was about to ask his disciples to go and do. It's a Jesus who controls everything that's calling his disciples to go and make more disciples. It's a Jesus who's fully authoritative that's calling disciples and asking them to be fishers of men. And that's what he says next. He says, right, you should go and make disciples. We might think that the the command in this sentence is to go, but actually that word is stated as a participle. If you're like me and you forgot what a participle was, I had to look it up. Participle sounds like a verb, but it's actually functioning as an adjective, right? We talk about the wrecked car or the crying baby. Again, all examples I looked up on the internet, right? But the truth is this, this might actually be translated better as you're going, as you're doing the things you do, as you're going out into the world that's filled with sinful people, make disciples. By the way, that's the command, is to make disciples. That's the business that we're to be about, is this process of disciple-making. The point is, you don't have to go anywhere different than where you are right now. When you go to the supermarket, you're surrounded by sinners. When you go to school, you're surrounded by sinners. When you come home, you're surrounded by sinners. Unless you live by yourself, then you're just one sinner. You don't have to cross an ocean to make disciples. You can do it right here in Troy, Ohio or in Pleasant Hill, Ohio, or in Tip City, Ohio, or wherever you might be. And he gives us these tools, right? He says, baptizing them, and then teaching them. He gives us these things that are, these are the means of how we make disciples. The first step is is baptism, right? It's this belief that I I was like living my life, and then God put me in water, and I died. Well, that's the symbolism, right? That I I was walking in this direction, and I had to die to myself, and Jesus had to raise me to new life. That's the the symbolic element that that Paul describes in Romans chapter 6, that I was living my life. It was sinful, and God raised me to new life. That's what baptism is. It's a fundamental denial of myself so that I can walk with God. It's meant to be a basic proclamation that I've renounced my former life and been converted to a new life in Christ that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, like Galatians chapter 2 says. And when Jesus talks that, that we should teach them, he says not just to teach them, but to teach them what? To observe all that I've commanded, that we should live in submission to this teaching that Jesus has given. The true disciples deny themselves so that they, they are baptized or raised to new life, and then they put on these observance of Jesus' teaching. That's what true disciples look like. I'm amazed at how many Christians will be selective with, with Jesus' teaching, like a, a child at a buffet. They gravitate toward the tasty parts. They, they go to Jesus' teaching on love and Jesus' teaching against self-righteousness. But when Jesus tells you that, that God brings you, a, when God brings a marriage together that no man should separate, the response is, but God wants me to be happy. And when Jesus teaches us that anyone who calls his brother empty head is in danger of hellfire, they say, I'm just being genuine. I'm being true to myself. And Jesus tells us that we cannot serve both God and money. We say God helps those who help themselves. 
many times do we reject Jesus' teaching in preference for our own desires and our own wants? Jesus' Jesus's disciples are to be obedient to his teaching. We can't skip what he says in verse 20. The last part of verse 20 says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We're going to go about this thing where Jesus is fully authoritative and he sends us out to make disciples. Guess what? He's going to be with us. We might not realize it. Excuse me. We might not realize it, but this brings the gospel of Matthew full circle. Because in Matthew 1, we were told that Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. And now he's with us for all eternity in the Spirit. What do we make of this then? What do we, how do we pull all of these things together? What we have is this authoritative Jesus. He's, he's authoritative. He's, he's calling on this angel that comes down and is in majesty, robed and, and glorious and powerful and all of these things. And then he speaks about himself. In verse 18, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he levels a command at his disciples, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And by the way, I'm with you. See, this resurrected Jesus, who's the true king of all creation, he has a command for us. He has a design. See, the recognition is that Jesus is in charge We might miss this, but the story, the arc of the Bible is pretty simple. It tells the story of rebellion and reclamation. It's in the Garden of Eden that we rebelled. Satan tempted Eve with this basic idea. If you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. You will know good and evil. And so Adam and Eve took and they ate. It was there in the garden that mankind was defined by its rebellion. Whether we know this or not, that that, that rebellion, that rebellious heart that was in our first forefathers has been passed down from generation to generation, that we have received this very rebellious nature in and of ourselves. And so when you do things that you don't want to do, it's part of your nature. It's bound up inside of you. John confirms this. He says that that sin is lawlessness. It's this idea that I don't have to be submitted to anyone, that I can be my own God, that I can be self-existent, that I can exist independently from God. Paul says it differently. He says that uh, sin, or not sin is lawlessness, but he says in, in Romans 14, he says, whatever's not of faith is sin. Doesn't that define us today? There's no faith. There's no submission to authority. We self-style our religious observance. From the most hardened liberal to the tightest conservative, our tendency is to define our religious observance in terms that seem appropriate to us. We select our religious stylings. We choose what God we want to worship. And even within the confines of a religious system, it's rare to find one who is top to bottom true to that belief system. We are the child at the buffet, choosing the sweet sugary things for ourselves. There's a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor. 
And honestly, he's too smart for me. I haven't read him. I've read those who've read him, if that makes any sense. So you're getting it a little bit distilled this morning. But Charles Taylor talks about two things, the buffered and the porous self. What he means by this is when there's a truth claim outside of me, when there's a reality to be conformed to outside of myself, it used to be we had this thing called the poorest self. Maybe two, 300 years ago, we lived in a, an enchanted world. There were things that we couldn't explain that, that happened that we were just, they were beyond us. And so the, the person two, 300 years ago naturally had a give and take with the, the world around them. But now something strange has happened through the process of scientific development and all of these different theorizings, we have become the buffered self. There's a reality around us that we fundamentally feel like we don't have to deal with. And the only truth claims that make it through are the things that I affirm in my sovereignty. I am the God who divides right and wrong. I am the arbiter of truth. We see this happen all the time today, don't we? We have people around us demanding different pronouns. We have fundamental denials of truth and existence. We have statements that say, just follow the science, and the science is fragmented and honestly shallow. We have all kinds of truth claims in front of us, and, and we, in our buffered selves, only let through those things that accord with our fundamental view of reality. Colin Hansen is the guy who read Charles Taylor that I read. He says this. It's on the screen. He says, you really have two options in a secular age. Either God is for you on your own terms, or... God sets the terms. Those are your two options. Either I'm going to be the arbiter of truth, or I am humbly going to submit myself to the truth as it is. Right now, we have a truth in front of us. This tomb is empty. We have to give an accounting of what happened here in Matthew 28. What will it be? How will you give an accounting of what has happened here? See, you might not realize it, but what is described here is a reality in which powerful Jesus went into a grave, came out again victorious over sin and over death, so that I could be victorious over sin and over death, so that I might be raised to new life. If I believe in this God of Matthew 28, I should anticipate that someday I will be raised to new life, that I will be present with Jesus. That's the truth, that the reality that exists. beauty of this passage is that Jesus entrusts his kingdom work to his disciples. You and I, if we are new in Christ, are representatives of this authoritative king. 
Paul tells us that we're ambassadors. We are those who represent a king in a foreign place, right? We are off. We are our exiles, right, in a foreign land, and we are representatives of the king, Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection have ushered in a new kingdom, and we are to represent that kingdom, kingdom to the world. Say, man, that's so intimidating. So intimidating that God would make me the representative of his world. But remember, he's with us always. He's fully authoritative. He's present with us. You know what I found to be true? I guarantee you it's true this morning. You will speak of the thing you love most. You will speak of the thing you love most. That's why sports nuts love to talk about March Madness. You know, that's why grandmothers love to show you pictures of their grandkids. You're going to talk about the thing you love. Jesus Christ endured hours of suffering on a cross. He went into a cold, lifeless grave. And he came out in powerful resurrection to perform heart surgery on you, to take out that stone-cold heart of yours and to give you a heart of flesh that beats with his glory and honor. That's what Christian witness is. It's all he's asking us to do. The question that remains in front of all of us is this. Will you represent his kingdom or yours. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that by your power and your presence and your authority, you would make us bold witnesses to your resurrection, to Jesus' resurrection. I pray that our hearts would be so infatuated with the gospel and the truth that you have taken our sin and given us righteousness in Christ that we couldn't help but tell. Lord, I pray that by your power, you would transform us from broken, sinful people to those who speak your words with grace and love. I pray that in that you would be honored and glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.